Welcome to the third episode of Cuttings from the Garden of English, Them's Fightin' Words. We saw in the first episode that the roots of the English language were established by a series of invasions of Britain. Naturally enough then, some of the early words in English were clearly associated with war. Helmet, behead, slaughter, weapons such as sword, knife, axe, spear, club, arrow. What I want to look at this time are familiar words and expressions that we may be surprised to find have a connection with war. Words about which we might discover thereby hangs a tale. It is always the human story in words that most intrigues me. We describe something as over-the-top, O-T-T in text speak, when it's excessive, over-dramatic, beyond reasonable bounds, usually something relatively trivial such as makeup, dress, a wedding, a performance. Yet this phrase comes from the First World War just over a hundred years ago, describing the action of soldiers climbing blindly over the parapet of their trench and across open ground into battle. In the golden glow of patriotic fervour, it was used in a positive way to suggest daring, a fighting spirit, doing more than was expected of you. But with the huge numbers slaughtered in these sallies, and the gradually changing attitudes to war, it has acquired its negative meaning today. No Australian can forget the tragic final scene of the 1981 Peter Weir movie Gallipoli. In the wake of terrorist activity early this century, and later with the arrival of the COVID pandemic, Australians were urged to be alert but not alarmed. Both these keywords came to us via French from orders in Italian military language. Alerta was a contraction of their phrase literally meaning to the height, meaning to the watchtower, and alarme was a contraction of the order to arms. We have all been rather shamefully guilty of turning a blind eye to something it is more convenient not to see, something that is less morally taxing if we pretend it's not there. It's an expression that was first recorded over 300 years ago, originally part of a longer expression, turn a deaf ear and a blind eye. But folk etymology, that process we encountered in episode 2, whereby the human factor rewrites linguistic history, prefers to fix its origin more heroically a century later, during the naval battle of Copenhagen in 1801, a British attempt to prevent the Danish fleet from falling into Napoleon's hands. Admiral Horatio Nelson received orders to retreat via flag signals. He clapped his telescope to his blind eye, claiming he had a right to be blind in the smoke-filled air, ignored the order and fought on to total victory. A loophole today is an inadequacy in a law or set of rules that can be exploited despite the presumed intention of the law or rules. Lawyers and tax accountants spring to mind. Originally, 
It was a narrow slit in a deep castle wall from which archers could shoot with relative safety. Most of us have to meet deadlines of some kind, not as threatening as the label might suggest, but often stressful nonetheless. The modern meaning of the phrase is the latest time something is due. It has quite a different origin in the American Civil War in the 1860s. It was the term implied inside a harsh Confederate military prison to a fence or ditch beyond which any straying prisoners would be shot dead. Our word picket came in the 17th century from a similar French word, piquet, spelt with Q-U in the middle, referring to one of a line of pointed sticks stuck in the ground as a defence against cavalry attack. The same piquet is the origin of the medieval spear-like weapon called a pike, as well as the origin of our suburban picket fence. Its meaning then widened to describe a soldier or a troop of soldiers on lookout duty, and widened again further in the 19th century to a group of striking workers, human-pointed sticks, stationed to prevent others entering their place of work. If your song on YouTube is a great hit, but no other success follows, it might be described as a flash in the pan. This old expression derives from the time when muskets, the forerunners of rifles, were weapons of war. Sometimes, when the flint caused a spark to fall into the tiny pan holding the gunpowder, the powder would flare but fail to fire the musket ball, resulting in only a flash in the pan. Today, the word slogan makes us think of advertising campaigns. Slip, slop, slap. Just do it. Or political campaigns. It's time. Make America great again. That I use the word campaigns is already suggestive of war. Slogan is an anglicised version of two Scottish Gaelic words meaning a multitude and cry, pronounced something like slurharum a term for the battle cry of Scottish Highland and Irish clans. The same multitude is there when you have a slew of emails to answer. Royal Air Force slang has made some colourful contributions to English. The inflatable life jacket worn by flyers was called a May West in tribute to the busty American actress. Our word prang refers today usually to a minor accident in a car. It originated in RAF slang in World War II where it meant either an aeroplane crash or a direct hit on an enemy aircraft, neither case likely to be minor. The word gremlin possibly derives from the name for some sort of goblin in old British fairy tales. RAF pilots used the word for mischievous imaginary sprites as a shorthand explanation of aeroplane and other mechanical problems, a fanciful way perhaps of keeping fear at bay during World War II. Children's author Roald Dahl, a war pilot, introduced them to a wider world in his 1943 debut novel, The Gremlins.
The series of Anglo-Dutch wars of the 17th century, with both sides contending for naval supremacy in battle and in commercial trade for such commodities as the valuable spices of Indonesia, led to some insulting English expressions that survive today. Dutch courage is a false courage to be whipped up by drinking an excess of alcohol before undertaking a difficult task. Speaking double Dutch is to be talking a load of nonsense. Someone who speaks to you like a Dutch uncle gives you unsparingly frank and harsh criticism. A Dutch nightingale is a frog. A Dutch treat is one you pay for yourself. Rather childish and petulant stuff. Today we understand that any forlorn hope we cherish has a very faint chance of fulfilment. But the etymology has nothing to do with hope. The phrase has been changed by folk etymology to more recognisable words from the original Dutch, verloren hope, meaning lost troop, a term for a troop of soldiers, often daredevil volunteers from as early as the 16th century, essentially on a suicide mission likely motivated by military advancement and cash gifts if they survived. The word scarper means to run off quick smart, usually to avoid trouble, and comes from a similar Italian word with the same meaning. The word gained an added dimension at the end of World War I when the German naval fleet was imprisoned at the British naval base in the Orkney Islands to the north of Scotland at Scapa Flow. The name, spelt S-C-A-P-A, comes from Old Norse, and this sheltered location was used by Vikings over a thousand years ago. To prevent the fleet from becoming the spoils of war and to preserve Germany's honour, the captured admiral ordered the scuttling of the fleet and succeeded in sinking 52 of his 74 ships within a few hours. Cockney rhyming slang, the time-honoured British linguistic tradition where, for example, trouble and strife is the term for wife, adopted scapa flow for go when it meant the same as scapa. If you're do-lally, You've gone a bit bonkers. You're temporarily mad. At the height of British rule in India in the 19th century, the term derived from a British Army transit camp near Mumbai at a place called Deolali. Soldiers often had to wait months in mosquito-ridden heat and monsoonal deluges for their ship home at the end of their tour of duty. And many succumbed to alcoholism, malaria, venereal disease and associated mental derangement. Many people today work freelance. No weapons required. Not that it occurs to most of us to think there would be. We rarely think of the literal meaning of individual elements in idiomatic expressions. In medieval times, the term referred to mercenaries with no sworn allegiance who were available for hire. One of their weapons would have been the light metal-tipped spear called a lance, echoed too in the word for a surgeon's instrument, a lancet. Letters to the newspaper from irate pedants 
appear whenever a headline has announced that some village has been decimated by marauders, by disease, by natural disaster. It is clear to all readers that there has been appalling loss of life. That is the current meaning of the word. The pedants want the original meaning to be the only meaning. But language is constantly in flux whether we like it or not, and they are fighting a losing battle. However, the original meaning reveals an interesting and differently horrific story. You will recognise the Greek via Latin root dec, meaning ten, as in decimal. Decimation was a form of Roman military discipline in which every tenth man in a large group, chosen by lot, was beaten to death by members of his own group as a punishment for offences by many or all of the group, offences such as cowardice, desertion, insubordination. The procedure was a practical attempt, and the Romans were supremely practical, to balance the need to punish serious offenders with the realities of managing a large number of offenders. And the practice has been reported even as recently as during the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II. Blockbusters was a term applied to big bombs dropped by the Allies on industrial targets in Europe during World War II, and then extended to refer to explosive news items. The reference to hugely successful films came about 1950. We are accustomed to associating avant-garde with new experimental and exciting ideas in such areas as art, music, literature. This French word originally applied to the front part of an army, the advance guard, until the French introduced its metaphorical meaning in the 19th century. The abbreviated word vanguard has the same history. Some unlikely articles of clothing have associations with war. In my youth in the 60s, it was not unusual to see rather stylish men wearing a cravat of some silky material loosely knotted inside an open shirt collar. We borrowed the word from French, where it is spelt with a final E. And in French, the word was their rendering of the Croatian word for themselves, something like chravat. Croatian mercenaries had fought for France in the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, and their dress included a neckcloth of silk for the officers and red linen for the ordinary soldiers. The neckcloth took on the name of the people who wore it when Louis the Fourteenth adopted it, and for a couple of centuries all sorts of elaborate neckcloths were worn as fashion items, until they developed into the tie, the necktie so beloved in the 20th century. In French, cravate is now the word for that tie. Our word cravate, without the E, is still the neckcloth. A cummerbund is today the pleated silky band at the waist of men's formal wear. It goes back to British colonial India, where, as a cooler alternative to a vest under their jackets, it was adopted as dining wear by military personnel from a similar sash long worn by the locals. The word is, of 
Persian origin. The annihilation of the British Light Brigade by the Russians at the Battle of Balaclava in the Crimea in 1854 has given us three new, what I like to call, wear words. The woolly head covering, worn by the British, later called a balaclava, the cardigan, and the sleeve called a raglan sleeve, with a seam from the neck to the underarm. The Earl of Cardigan led the doomed charge of light cavalry against entrenched guns, doomed, as in the case of Romeo and Juliet, by a failure of communication. He survived, but 40% of his men died. His cardigan was probably a buttoned woolen waistcoat. Lord Raglan, overall commander of the British forces, was the one to give the misinterpreted order that led to wholesale slaughter. He had lost an arm at Waterloo, and the Raglan sleeve may have been a more comfortable way of accommodating his lack of arm although I have been unable to find a portrait of him wearing such a garment. I have only recently come across an interesting theory of the connection of our iconic song, Waltzing Matilda, with soldiers, German soldiers. The phrase, not the song, may well have originated with 19th century German immigrants to Australia. Waltzing is from the German term Auf der Waltz, literally on the waltz, in reference to an apprentice travelling on the road while learning a trade, sleeping wherever he could. Matilda has German origins too, and means mighty battle maiden. It was a name given to female camp followers during the Thirty Years' War in Europe, evolving to mean something that kept soldiers warm at night, and later to mean the great army coats or blankets soldiers wrapped themselves in, which were rolled into a swag and carried behind their shoulders while marching. Onward to the 20th century wartime. The bomber jacket was designed in World War I to keep pilots warm in an open cockpit. Desert boots, very trendy in my youth, a crepe-soled suede boots designed by the Clark Shoe Company in 1941 for African desert conditions, to which they were better suited than heavier military boots. Cargo pants were a major fashion trend in the 1990s. They derived from utilitarian items worn in World War II by British military personnel. The extra pockets provided added storage and easy access to equipment. They were soon adopted as part of the uniform of US paratroopers and later strode the runways of the world. War has infiltrated English in unexpected places. <laughs>